have your Bibles, Romans chapter 8 is where we're heading. Romans chapter 8, we're uh, doing verses 26 through 30 this morning. Romans chapter 8, 26 through 30. This is, just so you know, this is dense stuff. It is dense, but it is glory. It is pure glory. <laughs> Uh, and, and this is what, you know, complements kind of some of the, what the ladies did this, this past weekend is, is um, man, to know the word, to know the word, to know the word. Some stuff may go over your head. That's okay. That's okay if stuff goes over your Stuff goes over my head all the time, right? I sit and read commentators and try to figure these texts out, and plenty goes over my head. But God also warms me with simple truths. Right? It revives the soul. So even as we go through this, it's, if it's like, man, I don't quite understand this, well, just find something to grab a hold of you know, through it all. Um, but it is glory. It is pure glory. All right, let's jump into it. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. It says this, Likewise, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And here that familiar text is. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Remember what we've been doing here in Romans chapter 8. We have kind of transitioned now. Paul has told us, the Apostle Paul, has told us how the Spirit leads us into purity, into that Christ-like conformity, right? We, we saw that a couple of weeks ago, but now he's transitioning from the ethic of the Christian life for how the Spirit leads us into purity to now the experience of the Christian life and how the Spirit leads us through suffering. Maybe to go off of what some of you ladies might have gone over uh, this past weekend, where all of this falls in redemptive history is after Christ. Christ dies, he's resurrected, and he ascends to heaven, but what he does is he says, hey, this is a good thing that I'm going, because if I go, then the Spirit's going to come. And the very word for Spirit is comforter, counselor. It is the one who comes to us, not only leads us into purity, the things of Christ, but he also leads us through our sufferings. As a Christian, you are not alone in your sufferings. The Spirit leads you through them all. And last week, we, we asked the question, okay, how does the Spirit lead us through suffering? What can we expect of the Holy Spirit when we're going through suffering. And the first thing that we saw last week is that he produces patience in us. What is the number one thing when you go through suffering that you just, I want this thing to end, anything to make it end. 
And Paul is saying, oh, how the Spirit gives this enduring strength to us. He gives something of patience to us. And remember, how does he give us patience? It's not just this magic wand that he waves over us. Okay, no, you have patience. No, but it's he helps us with perspective. He shows us, as Paul does in the previous verses that we didn't read, he shows us how suffering exists because salvation had to come through suffering. Jesus had to die upon that cross. We suffer because salvation had to come through suffering. We suffer because now even the offer of salvation happens only through suffering. When suffering ends, the time of coming to salvation will end. But we can know, as Paul says, that when salvation has been finally formed in us, so to speak, suffering will come to an end. Our salvation means the end of suffering. So what Paul has done, he's given us that first point. The Spirit, you can expect the Spirit to be producing patience. He's going to be reminding you of these incredible truths that give you something of staying power in the moment. But then he goes on in verse 26. How else does the Spirit lead us through suffering? And first, it's by giving voice to us. Verses 26 and 27. Notice verse 26. Look at the text like we don't just want to, as a pastor, make sure that as I'm preaching, I'm sticking to the text. If I'm not sticking to the text, I better hear it from you afterwards. Because you don't want my words. There's too many pastors out there speaking their own words, not speaking the word that actually gives you life. Right? So make sure we're getting to the word. Verse 26, it says, likewise. Likewise to what? Well, likewise... To the way that the Spirit produces patience in us, so now the Spirit helps us in our what? Weakness. Weakness. By the way, the word help has the idea of someone pushing this big boulder up a hill. We could say it's the boulder of suffering being pushed up the mountain of life. Right? There is a person, he's pushing that suffering up the hill, another day forward, another day forward through suffering. And, and he's come to this point where he's just exhausted. He feels his weakness, as the text says. But the idea of the Spirit helping us is that he's coming alongside next to us. He's not taking the boulder and removing it. He's not coming in on a helicopter, you know, choppering that thing out. Oh, perfect, relief, suffering, done. He's not doing that. He's helping us. He's putting his hands to our hands. He's putting his energy to our energy and seeing another day endured of pushing that boulder of suffering up the mountain of life. He's coming to us, working with us. In fact, the Greek word here for help has the prefix sin, not S-I-N, but S-Y-N. It has the same idea in our vocabulary as synchronize, or the variant of it, symphony, right? Where you have many parts working together for a particular goal. That's the idea here. The Holy Spirit 
synchronizes with us. He works with us, his hand to our hand, his energy to our energy, to see another day of endurance through the pains of suffering. He helps us in our weaknesses. In fact, this particular word is used for, for help is used one other time in the Bible. A very interesting place. Luke chapter 10, I think it's verse 40-ish, right? It's the story of Mary and Martha. And remember what happens, Jesus comes into their house, Mary comes and sits at the feet of Jesus to learn, and it's Martha, she's in the kitchen, busy, 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 you know, fixing up orders that Jesus never actually placed. And, and as she's busy, 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 she cries out from the kitchen to Jesus saying, like, Mary has left me alone to serve. Have her come help me. Same word as this. What is, what is Martha saying? She's saying, have Mary come in to help me get this order because without her help, I'm not getting it done for Jesus, right? It's the idea that she's asking Mary to put kind of her hand to her hand and, and, and get the work done. I can't do it without Mary's help. Right? It's kind of a negative illustration of what's happening here. But the positive illustration is Jesus in his own earthly ministry, Matthew chapter 11. He'll use the same concept, not necessarily that particular word, but the same concept where he says to us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest. For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is a yoke? You know, old school farming, you get the two oxen out there, and what goes over the two oxen? The yoke, right? It's what synchronizes those two oxen together to actually do the work, right? It's the idea of Jesus coming, as the text is saying, by his spirit to say, I want to share in the burden with you. I want to be yoked together with you. I want to help you in your weakness. When, when this week's suffering is too much for you to bear, when despair is all you know, you feel crushed, you feel like I can't hold it another day, the spirit comes to help you in your weakness. He makes possible what is impossible. Don't tell me you can endure suffering on your own. Isaiah 40 will point this out to us. It'll say even the youth in their prime will be crushed under the weight of life. But those who wait upon the Lord, what will happen? Oh, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those who wait on the Lord, you may be just kind of holding the boulder, right? 
but it's the Spirit as He comes, He makes possible what you can't make possible to see that suffering kind of pushed, endured one more day, one more day, one more day. This is what He does. He is the helper. He helps us in our weakness. But notice, how? How does He help us? Like, you got the concept there of the boulder, right? But how specifically, and perhaps what the Apostle Paul goes on to state, uh, perhaps this isn't what you'd immediately prefer in terms of the Spirit's help for you. Oftentimes we just want relief. I just want relief. Just get this boulder out of here. But no, verse 26, the help of the Holy Spirit looks like this. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Have you ever been in such terrible suffering? You don't even know. I don't even know what to say. I don't have words. I'm in such despair. I feel so crushed right now that I can't even put words together to even do this thing called prayer. I don't even know what to say. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself, what does he do? Look at the text. Got straight through the text. The Spirit himself what? Somebody shout it out. I'm not going to do it. Intercedes. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses by interceding for us, he becomes the go-between, as it were, between us and God, and specifically when we don't know what to pray. We can't even get our words together to bring them to God. So when suffering leaves us absolutely perplexed, the Spirit intercedes to give us voice, even when we do not know how to pray. Now, there is a very important question that we got to ask in all of this. Who's actually doing the groaning here? Is the Spirit groaning? Are we groaning? As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he says, why would the Spirit of God ever need to groan? He has no lack of knowledge. He has no lack of understanding. He has no lack of strength. He isn't confused. He isn't perplexed. He isn't crushed by the weight of your suffering. He's God. If we would look back in the text, verse 23, it's that we groan with creation. So we could say it's our groans, yes, but it's the Spirit who helps us with this groaning. He directs, he produces these groans, so in the end, whose groans are they? Well, there are groans, but the Spirit is energizing it. He is somehow producing it and directing our groaning so that what God hears is in accordance to God's will. Even by your wordless groaning, suddenly the heart of the Father is being moved. And he's being moved according to the purposes that he has already willed for you. In other words, the boulder gets moved. Even through groanings, because the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, because he provokes and moves our, our groanings to be brought to God, it means that now the boulder moves. 
endurance for another day through suffering. Now, I got to get here because as a church, we are by distinction charismatic. Got to slip this in there. And I don't, oh man, I don't say these things just to be like, oh, let's push this, push this again and again and again. Folks, the, to be charismatic, there is a world of grace to be found in the work of the Holy Spirit. There is help. We, uh, this aside, we sat in our Tuesday group of prayer and just kind of going through some lectures that we've been listening to. And uh, one of the lectures had talked about how Spurgeon, with his church, he, he seemingly preached the same thing again and again and again and again and again and again because it met the need of that context. You may say, Dan, why, why do you keep on talking about this charismatic, the gifts of the Holy Spirit? How long do we have to hear about the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Sometimes I feel like that's what's happening. Maybe it's not. <laughs> Look, when we came into this neighborhood, we knew two things. People are broken. And my words aren't going to change them. My words aren't going to, my wisdom can't change people. I can't do it. That's the whole point. I'm, I, I, you guys hear this right. I value therapists. Therapists can ultimately change you the way you need to be changed. They can give you insight, they can provide you wisdom, great, wonderful, there's common grace there, but they can't change you like the Holy Spirit can change you. That's the, that's the double edge here. We're broken, but we despair in ourselves. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do ministry here. We can't see change happen apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why I keep on strumming the same chord. We need the Holy Spirit. We need our charismatic distinctions. We need to know it. We need to pursue it because there's grace to be found there. So, back to groanings. <laughs> What's this all about? I believe that these groanings involve, if not directly, refer to the gift of tongues. Tongues is simply this. Don't complicate it. It's spiritual utterance, right? It's just spiritual utterance. And why shouldn't groans prompted by, directed by the Spirit fall under this same category? Remember what Paul has said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, that there are a variety of tongues, which means... You had Pentecost, the apostles spoke, and it was heard. It was directly heard. They were speaking languages that they didn't know, but others knew. And so they heard the gospel in those moments. They heard praises to God in those moments. It was human languages being spoken through the gift of tongues. But then Paul will also say, well, this gift of tongues is, is heavenly languages as well. In other words, there's various kinds. There's various species, if you will, of the gift of tongues. Why should not this as well be part of that category? That it is our groanings, but it is the Spirit's groanings. It's Him who is doing this work, energizing this work, so that what is spoken has effect. 
What is naturally spoken in our groaning somehow becomes supernatural, stirring fresh faith and inner strength to endure another day, to push that boulder forward just another moment. There is a grace of endurance to be found in the gift of tongues. Don't overcomplicate this gift and don't expect some grand spiritual experience to make you do it. Who's doing the groaning in this text? We are. Lift your voice and let groanings or whatever else come out, but direct it to God and you'll find that the Spirit is doing something in you, giving you strength from groanings that you don't even understand. There's something amazing about it. There is a grace of endurance to be found in the gift of tongues, so Christian, make a... Make a disciplined pursuit of this gift and then make a discipline of doing it. You gotta just do it. It will add grace to your life. It will add enduring power to your life. You will find Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, to be true. You will find something of renewed strength, mounting up like wings of eagles, running and not growing, weary, walking and not fainting. How? By the grace that is provided you through this gift of tongues. Your boulder of suffering will be endured another day. It will be moved another day through this grace we call the gift of tongues. All right, let me get off my soapbox. All right, that's important stuff, right? So finally, just, just to conclude this point, the Spirit gives voice to us. It's incredible. Finally, you, you guys know, we all know, that the worst kind of suffering is suffering without a voice. When you don't have a voice, you are no longer just suffering. You are bound to your suffering. You're bound to it. But Christian, do you know that with the Spirit, you always have voice? You always have voice, not just to the local authorities, right? Not just to a local judge who can figure this all out for you, who, or, or, or a lawyer who can go to, to, the, to, to the judge and advocate for you. No, 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 it's not just that. It's the one who goes to the sovereign God of the universe and makes a case for you. You're never voiceless because of the work of the Spirit. Even when you have no words, your case will always be heard and with objective clarity and divine effect. So how does the Spirit lead us through sufferings? By giving us voice. All right, ready for the next point? Point three. The Spirit leads us through suffering by working good for us. <laughs> Is that familiar passage? You either love it or you, you, you hate it, right? Uh, and I'm afraid, you know, people love it and hate it for all the wrong reasons because they just don't necessarily understand it. So let's get to understanding this. Verse 28. Notice, while we don't know what to pray at times, we do know this, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The first thing that we need to recognize is this that this verse is an exclusive promise reserved only, only for the believer. 
And how do we know this? Well, if you'd read in the Greek, the Greek actually fronts the words uh, for those who love God. Some of your translations that you have in your lap, it may have that fronted, it may not. But in the Greek, it's fronted and it's unnaturally fronted. You wouldn't normally say that, say it that way in the Greek. And what Paul is intentionally doing is he's taking that out, those who love God, and he's bringing it to the front of the sentence to emphasize the fact that it is only for those who love God that all things will work together for good. And then Paul says it again. It's like bookends to this promise. It is only for those who are called according to his purposes. All things will not work together for good for those who do not know Christ. We went through our Revelation series. We've seen justice and judgment brought to the world. Christ will do that. And for those who don't know Jesus, it won't be good. It won't be good. It's simply to say this, Christian, don't be tempted then like the psalmist is in Psalm 73. You know Psalm 73? He says this. He says, my foot almost slipped. David's writing this. David, why, why did your foot almost slip? Why, why did your faith almost fail? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw their prosperity. It seems as though the people that don't have Jesus are doing just fine. Why am I suffering? That's, that's the attitude. When I saw their prosperity, for they have no difficulties, no troubles, but when I thought of how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task. It frustrated him until I went into the sanctuary of God. When I went into the presence of God, then I discerned their end. Their end will not be good, for behold, those who are far from you shall what? Perish. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Don't. Think, don't think that because you're going through, don't begin to look at others who aren't suffering and envy them. If they don't have Jesus, all things will not work out for good. But oh, if you have Jesus, though you suffer under the weight of that crushing boulder, the Holy Spirit will be helping you through it all. And he will be ensuring that all things work for your what does that mean? All things work together for good. That's important to figure out in this text. It doesn't mean that all things will just be okay one day. All things working together for good doesn't just mean, okay, one day this is going to be done and over. That's true, but it's not just what that means. It's not referring to, like, future relief. It's this. It's that God takes the effects of sin, the strategies of Satan, the burdens of our suffering, and he overrules them for good. So that our present sufferings 
will only produce something of spiritual life. In other words, if your suffering is shame, shame will only produce honor for you. If you feel defeated, well, defeat will only produce victory for you. If you say, well, I screwed up again, I sinned again, your repentant sin will only glorify God's mercy. God takes what is evil and works it for good. That's the cross, right? That's the cross. Terrible thing, awful thing, but he works good through what the enemy meant as evil, through what man meant as evil. He works good through it. He brings about the greatest glory through the greatest tragedy. It's what God does. He takes our sufferings and he overrules them. It doesn't mean that he's just giving you relief. He's overruling them. He's working good through them. He's not just saying, all right, I'm going to take you out of the suffering. No, he says, I am going to ensure that all the crushing weight of your suffering produces something glorious. That's amazing. When God's on your side, it makes all the difference. Specifically then, what is this good that he is working? What is this good that, as the text says, he has purposed for us? Well, verse 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined, which means purposed. This was his intent. Those whom he foreknew, he purposed to be conformed into the image of Christ. God will use all your sufferings to conform you in greater measure to the image of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but in your sufferings, you may say, I don't care. Do you care enough about your sanctification? Do you care enough about you becoming like Christ that you would hear something like that and say, yes. Bring on the pain that I might be conformed to Christ. I think for many of us, we don't value our sanctification enough to actually rejoice in the text. We have to be careful. If you're not conformed into Christ, you're being formed further into the flesh. Flesh works death, remember, earlier in chapter 8? But those whose mind are set on the life and peace, to be conformed into the image of Christ, even under the turmoil of suffering, will produce life and peace for you. Again, you'll be able to somehow, supernaturally, stand up in the midst of the pressures of suffering. That's the idea. I'm being conformed more and more into Christ. I'm actually being aligned. I'm being shaped into the thing that is of ultimate life and peace to me. Being shaped into Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, I just got to toss this in here. Beautiful text. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, and because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If your eyes are set on Jesus, this is a glorious truth that we get to be conformed in the image of Christ through our suffering. This is the good that God is working. This is the good that he's purposed, that through our suffering, 
we would become more and more and more like Jesus. And this is where I'm saying. Then Paul actually adds on to this. If this concept is like, oh man, it's stretching my brain, right? It, just, just take in what you can. Because he adds on, not only is the good your conformity to Christ, but the good is that for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ in order that Christ might be the firstborn of many brothers. What in the world? The idea of the firstborn, remember, is one of preeminence. The firstborn takes the responsibility of the family. All your debts, you know, you think of a family, firstborn, he's the one who takes all the debts of the family on himself but then credits you with all his benefits. Catch it? You were a debtor in your sin. You did not belong in this family, but it was the firstborn Jesus who took upon himself your debt. He took it upon himself and gave you all the benefits of his position as the firstborn. He gave you all the grace. He took on himself all your debt. All the siblings then get the benefits of the firstborn, but here's the point, the firstborn gets the glory and the honor. Your good is his glory. In other words, the fact that you get his grace only is meant to then glorify him. You want him on the final day to be the exalted one. You don't want to be sitting on that throne because it's only good for you that he would satisfy your debts, that you would be given his grace to be conformed into his likeness. Again, so he would get the glory. If you get the glory, you stay in debt. You don't want to be that firstborn. You can never, you can never do what he's done. That's the whole point. He has become for us the firstborn. He gets the glory. You get the grace, he gets the glory. You get the benefits from the firstborn, but he gets the honor. That's the way it's supposed to function. Again, get, get your head around the concept of what Paul said there. There you are, holding the boulder of suffering this week. Oh, the Spirit's helping you so that you got voice, but the Spirit is also intent on making sure that the moment of perplexity and hardship that you're enduring is actually molding and shaping you into Jesus, right? The pressures are pressures that come and actually press grace into us. It presses the benefits of Jesus into us but as the benefits of Christ are pressed into us through the suffering, it is Jesus who gets all the glory. That's the picture. God will not waste your suffering. Which means this. Every millisecond of that suffering, there is going to be grace. Grace. Help upon help upon help upon help. Again, not just to take the boulder away. That'll happen someday. But again, so that there would be grace, empowerment to make you more and more and more like Jesus so that Jesus then gets all the glory. That's the good 
that God is working for all those who trust in him. Your good conformity to Christ by all his grace is to be for his glory. All right. Paul doesn't end there. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. The concept is just glorious. It's like to get your head around everything that's happening is just, it's just amazing, but it, it stretches your brain. All right. But moreover, it's the guarantee that our suffering must be turned for good. The fact that Christ will be glorified is the guarantee that I get grace. He must be glorified, which means I must get grace. God's end in all things, and just like, hold on to the thought for a second. God's end in all things, it's not fundamentally about you. It's about Jesus. God's aim is to exalt Jesus, and because his aim is to exalt Jesus, it means that you're perfectly secure it means that you inevitably will get the grace to be conformed into Jesus so that Jesus gets all the glory. You get that? All right. These are the massive concepts in Scripture that if we can get our head and heart into those things, man, they are glory for our daily sufferings, right? Now, all right, this is not all there is, and I'm, 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 I'm on the final stretch here. We'll, we'll finish things out. There is more to guarantee this grace that all things will work out for good. Like, if God's going to give us something of a crazy, incredible promise that all things are going to work out for you in the midst of your crushing suffering, he better have, if, he, if he's going to build the skyscraper of that promise and say, here you go, Christian, he better have a deep, deep, deep foundation that guarantees that promise. Get what I'm saying? Like, for that promise to stand, man, you better have a deep foundation, a guarantee that that thing's going to stand for the Christian. Because we know suffering. We know how hard and difficult it can be. Verse 29 and 30. It is the guarantee. It is the foundation of this promise. It's often been referred to as the golden chain of our salvation. There are certainly other aspects to our salvation that could be included into the links of this golden chain, but the links in this chain of salvation are uniquely made possible by God and by God alone. This is the, in other words, if you're going to get the skyscraper of this promise, incredible promise that it is, God and God alone is responsible for that deep and sturdy foundation for you. He alone. That's rest for your souls. That promise doesn't ride on you. It doesn't ride on your performance. It doesn't ride on how spiritual you've been this past week. It's all founded upon God and what he's done in providing a salvation for us. So let's just briefly look at this salvation. First, God foreknew us. You say, what in the world does foreknowing mean? It means that before the foundation of the world, God knew you. He knew you. It is not that he knew about you. It is not that he foresaw your faith in him. He did not foreknow your faith. He foreknew 
you before the foundation of the world. He had an intimate and working knowledge of you. He foreknew you before time. And in that foreknowledge, then, he predestined you. That is, he predestined our conformity to Jesus. He predestined our very salvation. He predetermined it for us. He ensured that your destiny would be already determined to be saved by Christ. He foreknew you, he predestined you. Another text that we could look to to support this is Ephesians chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Before the world was ever created, he foreknew you and he then predestined you to be adopted into his family. Before you were even a, a blip on the radar, he knew you. And he said his love upon you. Do you ever sit back and think about your salvation and how you came to faith in Jesus and say, I don't deserve that. That's where it inevitably leads you. I thought I did something to earn my salvation. No. No. You didn't do anything to earn your salvation. Well, I, 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 you know, that preacher told me to repent and trust in Jesus. Well, you could only do that if the next point wasn't the point. Those whom he predestined, he also called. He called you to this salvation. And what does this idea of calling actually mean? Well, Paul says the same, uses the same word, same concept in Romans chapter 4, verse 17. He's, he's speaking about Abraham saying, uh, where God had promised to him, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into what? Existence, the things that do not exist. God's calling is not just a little bit of, hey, I'll give you a little bit of direction. You come trust me, come trust me. Oh, you did it, wonderful. That's not the idea of calling. The idea of calling is going up to a dead corpse and saying, Live! And there's life. You didn't come to faith and repentance in Jesus because, oh, you just figured it out. God spoke life to you and faith was awakened in your heart. Which means this, he gets all the glory, doesn't he? <laughs> There's no, well, I did this and I did that. And I'm pretty good. And, you know, I go to church and I do this and that. No. He called you from death to life. And those whom he called, he justified. To be justified is to be declared right before God. It's your legal, righteous standing before him. It's what the book of Romans really dives deep into. Romans 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are made right. They are justified by his grace as a gift, not work, as a gift. 
not as a wage, as a gift. So Romans 4, like if he, Paul's not making it clear enough, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. He's worked for it. It ain't a gift. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, there it is, the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You get the idea? You did not work for your salvation. You didn't make yourself right before God. You didn't dig the deep wells of, founda- of the foundation upon which the glorious promises of his salvation stand. That's good news. There'd be all kinds of cracks in that foundation if I had a role in actually establishing the foundation. It's God and God alone who has done all these wonderful things. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's the final link of our salvation when the sons of God are revealed and all sin and suffering is banished forever. It's when Satan, all those who remain dead in their trespasses and sin, are cast into hell forever. God does it all. And if it's God alone who has laid that deep, sturdy foundation of our salvation, you can be guaranteed that the promise that all things will work out together for your good will certainly and surely come to pass. Our good is guaranteed because the Spirit applies this glorious salvation to us. It is a profound gift. It is a grace. And it is the Spirit then who works for our good. Our good is guaranteed because it's not dependent upon us, but on the Spirit of God who works good for us. So to recap, and to finish out, I know I've gone long. To recap and come full, how does the Spirit lead us through suffering? He produces patience in us. We saw that last week. He gives voice to us when we don't have voice. And He works ultimate good for us. So, as a church, let's be a Spirit-led community. So that even in times of suffering, in times when things even within our own church get shaken up, we aren't undone by what we see or by the experiences that we go through, but that we give ourselves to this spirit-led life, and what a life that can be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for your word. The depths of it are more than our minds can even get around, that our hearts could even contain. But thank you for the deep riches of your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you are the ones who open up our ears, you open up our minds and our hearts to these truths. And may it be that even this week that you remind us of these glorious truths that you've provided to us, these realities. Spirit, lead us through suffering. Help us in our weakness. And would it be that we would be able to see you even working good for us and turning that which is intended for evil for good so that Christ gets all the glory. May it be in Jesus' name. Amen.
trusting others, but trusting that God's going to have his hand on his son by sending out. And I kind of feel that right now as we leave here. Uh, man, we just got, uh, that was a beautiful gospel sermon right there. That, that was, I commend Dan for, for being sensitive to the spirit and bringing that to us. Uh, that was excellent. And I'm kind of rejoicing in my spirit and just in the beauty of the I don't know what's going to happen.